Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisberg Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. From Science News, we've got a really interesting article. It's called Camouflaging Wheat with a Wheat Smell Could Be a New Approach to Pest Control. What? <laughs> so wheat doesn't smell like wheat? No, no, no. We make wheat smell like wheat, but even wheatier. It's like that old <laughs> meme of like, yo, dog, I heard you like wheat, so I put wheat under wheat. So... Let's move into the world of mice. It's a very fabulous world where a lot of grain is consumed. In fact, they're responsible for nibbling away at 70 million metric tons of cereals every year. So it's kind of a big wow. problem. Yeah. And some of that munching takes place in Australia, where when the weather is right, house mice can reach plague proportions. <laughs> there are videos of like moving fields where it's just mouse on mouse on mouse and wow. waves of them. If you need a bit more of an illustrative, and I apologize for the lack of sensitivity on this, at times when the plague can reach these proportions, there are so many mice on the road that it's like, quote, driving on bubble wrap. That's <gasps> Peter Banks, a behavioral ecologist at the University of Sydney. It's, it's awful for everything, right? And part of what makes this so terrible is because of wheat agriculture in the country. So when farmers plant wheat, mice will go down the rows, they'll sniff out the seeds under the soil, and then just dig them up. And to try to dissuade the mice, farmers will overrun them with poisons like zinc phosphide, which changes to a phosphine gas inside the mouse's stomach. But hmm. Sadly, it's hard to make any poison appealing enough to make mice ignore the wheat. So farmers are resorting to more and more of the poison, which is ugh, not great. So they've been working on olfactory camouflage, covering scents with more scents. And the technique started with invasive predators who hunt for threatened bird nests by smelling them out. Hmm. Quote, we thought, well, if we put these odors everywhere, how on earth can they find out where the nests actually are? So... Before or during sowing, the scientists sprayed all these mouse-riddled test plots with something called wheat germ oil. It's a byproduct of wheat processing. We usually use it in cosmetics or animal field, but the oils happen to be the most nutritious parts. Hmm. And the smell of the oil is what the mice are using to hone in on the seeds underground. So... Two weeks after the seeds had been sown in this experiment, plots that had been hosed down with the oil before sowing had 74% less mouse Wow. Holes. Parker says the mice were coming, they're seeking food, and they were just finding nothing because the smell is everywhere. It's like the ground smells like this deliciousness. That stalk of grass smells like deliciousness. So the camouflage probably won't be enough on its own. It may not replace bait. But it could be another tool in the shed that could really help. Right. How expensive is it to make and produce? Probably not that much, considering that wheat germ oil is a byproduct of wheat manufacturing. So you just right. kind of harvest it as you're doing it, yeah. and it becomes a bit of a camouflage. Pretty elegant, right? Give up your cosmetics to stop the mice. It seems like a fair trade. I think <laughs> we should go for it. You know, maybe we should melt a whole bunch of lipstick, spread <gasps> it over wheat fields, and see what happens. Pink wheat! <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. 
This comes from New Atlas, new cause for common hypertension discovered as well as a cure. Oh. Hypertension, wow. or having blood pressure that is measured consistently above normal, can lead, if untreated, to a greatly increased risk of heart attacks, strokes, and other cardiovascular problems. Mm. It is manageable, but often requires a lifelong drug routine, which we all know comes with a whole other host of problems, both medically and, if you're in the U.S., financially. Mm-hmm. And fun fact I had to look up, 70% of Americans will have high blood pressure in their lifetime. Mm. And scientists in the UK have discovered a gene variant that causes a common type of high blood pressure. I'm not clear on how many of that 70% have this gene, but one of the most common causes is what's called alder, alderostononoma. Uh, I got to say it like an Italian, alderostononoma. <laughs> there we are. That, that came out a lot easier, actually. But is a small non-cancerous tumor that form in adrenal glands and can cause interruption of the production of a hormone called aldosterone. The aldosterone regulates the body's salt water balance. Okay. However, in order to get a proper diagnosis, it's not easy. Those levels fluctuate all day. So it doesn't become apparent unless the patient has multiple blood tests at different times of the day, which is a lot of fun. I mean, that sounds like it's not related to diet at all. It's just literally you happen to have this kind of tumor and that's Mm -hmm. what's causing your high blood pressure, in which case 70 percent of people having it is a problem because then they're all just going to be like, nah, you're just one of those people who eats too many hamburgers and they'll never test you (laughs) for this thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the researchers also found a cure. Removing one of the adrenal glands was found to correct the imbalance of aldosterone, and therefore their hypertension abated. Huh. Hmm. So they don't get rid of the tumor. They're just like have half as many adrenal glands. Right. They probably can't lift a car anymore under duress. (laughs) Right, right, right. right. (laughs) It's worth the cost. Right. And in the years after the surgery, patients, again, required no drugs or other treatments, even when their hypertension had previously been severe or resistant to drugs. On the diagnosis side, the researchers also recommend a 24-hour urine test to measure the fluctuations of the hormone over time, rather than a one-off blood test, Mm. which can miss a vital clue. That still sounds easier, though. Peeing in a cup for Mm -hmm. 24 hours is better than getting blood tests every hour for a whole day. Yeah, but again... To verify, they're still going to have to poke They're still going to make you. All right. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the team now is investigating whether they don't have to remove the entire gland. They can just burn out the nodule. All right. So a little less severe of a surgery, and you get to keep all of your adrenaline. Yay! <laughs> <Whee>! <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there is hope, and as you were saying, it might not just be all your fault from your stress or from your diet that you were eating. Hey, listen, even if it is stress, you've always got late-stage capitalism to blame. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> just living. None of the symptoms matter as long as you can blame somebody for it. That's what's important. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. That's what my psychologist told me. So, yep. <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's it, though. Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. This next article is from Popular Mechanics, and it's called Scientists Have a Strange New Theory About How King Tut Actually Died. Oh. Hmm. So apparently the accepted theory in the academic community up to this point has been that the teenage pharaoh died of some disease, probably malaria, potentially after being weakened by some kind of wound. And this made sense to a lot of people because he was, in fact, just 19 years old, so he shouldn't have been dying from any of the typical ailments, and also because he appeared to have a club foot, which scientists theorized would have made him largely immobile and weak from birth. In 1925, researchers attempted to do a formal autopsy, but it was inconclusive, 
And at the end of the day, they had to admit that we really just couldn't know for sure for three reasons. First, the cause of death is going to be hard to determine on any corpse that's 700 years old. Second, the mummification process, while it does preserve parts of the body, also inherently damages some of the things we might look for to determine cause of death. And third, most importantly, Tut's body seems to have been burned to a crisp from inside his coffin. Oh. Yeah, which I had never heard. It's a very cool detail, and no one has ever said this to me. Yeah, and I'm kind of an Egypt nerd, too, and I hadn't hadn't heard that one. Yeah, and the assumption there is that the embalming process was done incorrectly and that the combination of embalming oils with oxygen and linen caused it to spontaneously combust after burial. Because it was definitely fully inside the coffin. Nothing outside the mm-hmm. coffin burned. And that, that would make sense, too, that it was a rush, right? Because everything else about his burial was pretty rushed. He's in the wrong spot. Yeah. Uh, apparently, that's not even his... The the famous faceplate that we see mm-hmm. is kind of was also a rush job. Huh. Mm-hmm. But with the whole thing being burned to a crisp and it was mummified in the first place, it's fair to say we're going to be hard-pressed to get any good information from his body. But in 2013... New scanning techniques allowed scientists from the Cranfield Forensic Institute to perform a virtual autopsy, which revealed a series of severe injuries down one side of his body, including a fractured leg and a shattered pelvis and ribs. What's more, King Tut is apparently the only pharaoh we've ever found without a heart. And the new theory that came out of this 2013 study was that this is not a coincidence that whatever damaged his pelvis and ribs was so violent that it just completely obliterated his heart to the point that there was nothing left to embalm. This team also questioned the club foot, as well as the entire narrative that Tut was a sickly, weak child. They said there's definitely some kind of damage to his foot, but given what we now know about his other injuries, the foot itself is probably just another injury. In fact, they say, he was probably the very model of an overactive teenage boy who took unnecessary (laughs) physical risks. He he fell off his chariot. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, because the other thing we do know about King Tut was that he loved chariot races. And the reason we know this is because he was buried in his tomb with no fewer than six different chariots. And the tradition of the time was to be buried with the objects that were most important to you so you could enjoy them in the afterlife. The proponents of the sickly child narrative thought he just loved watching the chariot races, but this team from 2013 said no, he was racing them, and the thing that injured him so grievously was most likely a violent chariot crash. (laughs) And now, an Egyptologist named Sophia Aziz has modified the chariot crash theory to include the idea that King Tut was probably, according to her, extremely drunk. She says, everyone talks about the chariots in his tomb, but no one ever mentions the other thing that was found in huge abundance alongside his body, which was wine. Not only was the wine collection at least as impressive as the chariot collection, but it includes some of the first known examples of white wine in the region alongside the red. What? So this means King Tut didn't just like wine. He liked the rarest and most expensive wine. He was a connoisseur. And so she says it's safe to assume, therefore, that he was drinking a lot of it on a regular basis. And given how teenage boys like to combine alcohol and extreme sports, she says it makes the most sense that he and his racing companions were all drunk at the time of the crash. (laughs) And that does also explain, perhaps partly, the rushed burial job, because this kid was not supposed to die. And oops, now somebody has run him down with a chariot and brutally destroyed his body. We got to, like, sweep this under the rug fast. Mm. 
She fully admits that there is no way to know for sure, but at the very least she agrees that we have to let go of this idea that King Tut was a frail boy with a birth defect because all the evidence points toward him being a very active thrill seeker. I guess Mothers Against Drunk Driving hadn't gotten to him yet. No, no, no. (laughs) I mean, it's probably worth mentioning that water was not safe to drink back then. And so wine as a hydration Mm. method was still kind of the default, like wine and beer, right? You don't get dysentery from it because it's been fermented. but Yeah, and sterilized because of it, yeah. What I'm trying to say is epigenetically, we're all alcoholics. Yes, yes. (laughs) Well, and they they seem to sort of, I'm not sure how they determined this, but the 2013 team said they could even tell that he was on his knees when the chariot hit him. So it may have been like, his chariot crashed, he was on the ground, the other one comes blasting through. And you got to think, the guy who accidentally killed the pharaoh did not come out too well on this. Like, even if he survived That's why they did a rush drop. They were like, uh, yeah, that mask is fine. Uh, put him over there. Or just be like a Dave situation. You're the new pharaoh now. Like, you look enough like him, get up there. (laughs) (laughs) Weekend at Tuts. There you go. Next link. Next link. Good news, everyone. The Guardian is reporting that a hidden Malibu beach will open to the public for the first time in 40 years. Woohoo! All right. We're talking about Escondido Beach in particular, and it was cut off by wealthy homeowners who craftily hindered the path to the coastline. Mm. (laughs) So the state has just approved an agreement for wealthy landowners to create a new path to the coastline, which is, I guess, 40 years too late, but hey, at Mm. least it's happening. Mm -hmm. Now, Escondido Beach is known for its placid waters and golden sand, but it had been mostly inaccessible to the public since the 1980s when the homeowners in the area cut it off. And California law requires that land below the high tide remain open to all. So on June 7th, the California Coastal Commission finally brought an end to a years-long legal battle by approving this agreement to restore public access to the beach. And yes, it is paid for by the wealthy homeowners who live near the area. Now, the beach is named Escondido, which is, by the way, Spanish for hidden. So, you know, says what it says <laughs> on the tin. And until recently, people could only access it by paying a fee to park at a lot that was a quarter mile away. Or they could enter it by way of a restaurant called Jeffrey's, which is a half mile away. So it was like a speakeasy beach, basically. Wow. In the 1970s, here's how it all went down. A trail ran down from the roadway down to the beach, but the home's previous owners made a number of moves to block it off. So the former owners, Ken and Jeanette Chiate and Marilyn and Roger Wolk, they began blocking access to the beach with unpermitted development, like private driveways, walls, mailboxes, even palm trees. Now, the current owners of the property, they argue that they inherited the violations. They had not committed any wrongdoings themselves, but still they agreed to finance the restoration. Under the agreement, the Wildman Family Trust will remove the illegal development and move the public access easement closer to the location it was intended for. They will also construct a public beach access way from Pacific Coast Highway. They will also install five public parking spots and a restroom. How generous. Five spots? Yeah. Yeah, that's not going to be enough. No, it won't. But boy, I hope the crowds really make those properties sweat. Uh, (laughs) With an estimated cost of over $3 million, which again, given the dynasty wealth here is total peanuts. But Mm -hmm. hey, the beach will be back open. And I hope everybody has a wonderful time frolicking in the waters. They'll have to change the name, I guess. 
Yeah, it's not hidden mm. anymore. I don't know how to say found in Spanish, but. <laughs> <laughs> no oculto, not hidden. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Brad. Next link. Next link. Well, speaking of hidden things, this article comes to us from sciencealert.com, and it's titled, Humans Actually Have Secret Stripes and Other Strange Markings. What? Yeah. So by the turn of the 20th century, German dermatologist Alfred Blaschko had studied the skin of more than 150 patients. He noticed the patterns of moles, birthmarks, and other skin conditions across their bodies and discovered they appeared to follow set lines. The lines seem to be present at birth and don't follow any known body systems such as vessels or nerves. Instead, they create sweeping chest arcs, mountainous shapes across the back, and swirling butt loops. <laughs> These Blaschko lines are now thought to trace the journeys our cells took as they divided and grew into the skin we're now in during embryonic development. Huh. Specifically, they're drawn by the paths of keratinocytes, the main cell in our surface skins, and melanocytes, the cells deep in the epidermis responsible for our skin pigment. Melanocytes form in the neural crest of an embryo while we're still just a blob of a few hundred cells. Around this stage of development in females, cells start randomly picking which X chromosome to shut off as we only need one of them active per cell, yet have inherited two, one from mom and one from dad. Some of the embryonic cells that give rise to our skin cells will have the father's X chromosome, while others have the mother's. All the cells that divide from those early cells will maintain the same epigenetic X chromosome setting, whereas the line next to it might be the same or could have the other X. Huh. So this is how some of the patterns present as lines, whereas others come out as bigger patches. Such patchworks of genetic patterning are called mosaicism and can happen with mutations that occur early in development as well, not just traits linked to the X chromosome. As human pigment color is determined by more than just a gene on our X chromosome, you usually can't see this effect in humans. However, in other animals, coat color genes are linked exclusively to their X chromosome. This is how we end up with calico cats, for instance. Their mm. color patches clearly mark where each of the two different types of cell lie, one group with the mother's X chromosome and the other with the father's. But some conditions can also make these lines visible in humans too. Mutations involving color-producing cells can lead to pigmentary mosaicism presenting as streaks and swirls following Blaschko lines. Another rare but extreme example of mosaicism in humans is chimerism. And that's when two differently fertilized eggs merge to form a single individual. Mm -hmm. They can end up with a random combination of two genetically different skin types that most often appear as a checkerboard pattern of mosaicism. So some researchers suspect that these lines may also explain the way rashes like dermatitis from poison ivy spread. More common skin conditions like eczema and psoriasis can also follow these same patterns. And that's basically where the article ends off. But I will probably look up more illustrations because these are honestly really cool. Yeah, I would uh -huh. love it if there were some sort of like UV light equivalent where you could just go and see yes. what, what are your markings. We would just then use that as a way to be like, cabbie stripes are better than calico spots. Right, right, Those right. guys have it all wrong. Star-bellied <laughs> sneetches. They used a UV light to confirm my vitiligo diagnosis. Oh, okay. They kind of came in, hit me with it, because I thought initially I just saw had some kind of fungus or something that was taking the pigment away on my hands. Mm. But when he came in and put the, the light on, he said, nope, 
you got vitiligo. I said, well, okay, what can I do? He's like, nothing. <laughs> just wear just your stripes with pride. You just have cool uh, well, colors. That's all right. Mm-hmm. It's blotchy. Yeah, I got to say, they're yeah. talking about these conditions with psoriasis and birthmarks and everything. I've only ever seen blotches. I would love to see someone with tiger stripes. That would that right? would be amazing. Time to break out a big ultraviolet light rig so that you could just shine it on people. Spray everybody. Right, right, right. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. Okay, pretty short one here, and I don't know if you all seen the video. Dead woman bangs on coffin during her own wake in Ecuador. No, 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 no. They put dead in quotes. Right. So a 76-year-old woman who was declared dead at a hospital in Ecuador astonished her relatives by knocking on her coffin during her wake, prompting a government investigation into the hospital. It gave us all a fright, said son (laughs) Gilberto. Uh huh. Adding that doctors said his mother's situation remained dire. Oh. In a grand fit of irony, retired nurse oh. Bella Montoya was admitted to hospital on Friday wow. after suffering a possible stroke and a cardiopulmonary arrest. Gosh. When she did not respond to resurrection, a doctor on duty declared her dead and handed over identity documents and a death certificate. Family then brought her to a funeral home and were holding a wake later on Friday when they started to hear strange sounds. <laughs> there were about 20 of us, Bobera said. After about five hours of the wake, the coffin started to make sounds. My mom was wrapped in sheets and hitting the coffin. Oh. And when we approached, we could see that she was breathing heavily. Now, I've seen the video. They filmed the coffin opening? Oh, my God. Oh, they filmed the whole process of them wow. yeah, figuring it out. So relatives rushed Montoya back to the hospital in the central city where the health minister said she was in intensive care. She was under intubation and the doctors weren't giving relatives much hope about her prognosis. The ministry said it was investigating the unnamed doctor involved in her case and a technical committee has been formed to review how the hospital issued death certificates. Mm. Uh, you know, it happened a lot back in the day, too. That's why they had those little bells. Mm-hmm. That's right. But yeah, it's yeah. 2023. Yeah, you think yeah. we'd have better ways of knowing if absolutely they were dead. Yeah. You just check Twitter, right? That's right. how we do it now. <laughs> you just yeah. check it, Twitter. If someone's trending, they're either dead or they did something <laughs> very wrong. <laughs> Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, I I have a spoiler alert. I did see a follow up article to this one, though. I didn't see the original. Uh, Uh, She died. She like spent a week in intensive care. And then they were like, no, she's actually really, really dead now. (laughs) (laughs) On that happy note, next link. Next link. All right. ZME Science has a wonderful profile on the Fennec Fox. It's adorable and the Sahara's smallest predator. And yes, there are pictures I highly recommend visiting the article. It's one of the most extraordinary mammals in the world, in part because it lives in the desert, which is obviously one of the most inhospitable habitats for life. But fennec foxes thrive there. How do they do it? First of all, the fennec fox is actually the smallest species of the Canidae family, which includes dogs, wolves, and other types of foxes. It measures only nine and a half to 16 inches in body size, and it weighs just 2.2 to 3.3 pounds. And despite its small size, it's easily recognizable because it has some distinctive features, notably unusually large ears. Each ear is about the size of its entire skull. They're so big and so adorable. And these are useful for detecting the faintest sounds of potential prey, but they also act as natural air conditioners because they dissipate heat and help the Mm. fox stay cool in the desert. 
They're Mm. also nocturnal. They're very flighty and skittish. Even the smallest of noises can put them on very high alert and get them jumpy. They've got very hairy feet, kind of hobbit-like. They act like snowshoes, which protect the animal from hot sand. They also act like shovels, allowing the cute desert fox to dig frequently into the dense sand. It's got a sandy color coat, which is perfect camouflage against the desert landscape. And the fur pattern also aids in reflecting heat during the day. The Sahara Desert is the fennec fox's primary habitat, and they are opportunistic omnivores. So they will eat rodents, insects, birds, eggs, and even plants. They can hear prey moving underground because of those large ears, and along with sharp claws, they are a pretty effective hunter in the desert environment. Sadly, due to their size, they are also hunted themselves by larger predators like eagle owls, jackals, Mm. and even striped hyenas. But they also feature complex social behavior. They live in small communities. They often consist of a mated pair and their offspring, and they communicate through a range of vocalizations from barks to purrs. Now, if all of this has totally sold you on the fennec fox, the last part of the article is here for a reason. The fennec fox as a pet. A very bad idea. (laughs) So yes, they're adorable, but you do not want to have one of these in your house or even your neighborhood. They don't like being cuddled. They don't even like being handled by humans. They're cautious by nature, so they will probably flee rather than fight, but they definitely will bite you if they're scared or nervous. If for some reason I haven't turned you off to the fennec fox as a pet, be prepared for the challenges of housing an active and agile creature. (laughs) Unneutered males will mark their territory with pee, which can, you know, be a problem if you plan to let them roam freely in your home. And their energetic play results in broken stuff. So you have to basically harness everything down because they really need a ton of exercise. They need plenty of space to run and play. And they are not quiet pets. Those ranges of vocalizations, those can range from high-pitched screeches when they're scared or upset, or they can coo when they're content. But this is to say... (laughs) I mean, so does a chihuahua. Yeah. Yeah, but but so pets. what does the fox say was correct? It's really like, it's extreme. I mean, you could find the videos of foxes vocalizing and it's very Aww. difficult to replicate. And the reason you can find all these videos is because people don't listen. The capture and sale of fennec foxes for the illegal wow. pet trade is still one of the main factors contributing to their demise in the wild. So for now, the fennec fox is currently listed as a species of least concern, which means that it's not as threatened as some other species. But this doesn't mean that they're free from all threats. They obviously are dealing with some habitat loss due to desertification and human encroachment, along with this illegal capture for the exotic pet trade. So please don't. I think it's really interesting how, for a lot of animals, getting cuter, according to humans, contributes to your survival. But you cross that line (laughs) and you get too cute. And now Mm. everybody wants to hold you and cuddle you and you start to go extinct. Like there's a middle ground of cuteness that will keep your species alive. Yeah. And it may not be that they're going extinct, but we may trigger some kind of domestication split where it's like we have our domestic fennec foxes and the wild foxes. But frankly, we we got enough. We really don't need to be doing that. Yeah, no, we don't need no. more there was pets. a Russian scientist a while back mm-hmm. that kept foxes and over, I think, three or four generations, they became tricolored and started mm-hmm. barking. <laughs> kind of he just turned them into dogs. 
Yeah, they, I, th- yeah. I believe that it was part of an experiment to chart domestication, right? I, I think that it was actually started because he was a fur trader. Oh, yeah. Oh, that makes a lot okay. more sense, too. Mm-hmm. And he just didn't breed the ones that bit him when he stuck his hand in the car. Yeah, because if you're getting, oh, oh. Yeah, we can leave that part out of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> the sad part. <laughs> right, not to, or the, here's how to actually do this awful thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you mean super soakers full of lime juice on the beach? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include why China and the USA are fighting over Greenland, the spool paradox, and the largest scorpion in the world is an absolute unit. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.